Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Good evening, and welcome to session four, where we're talking, uh, we're still in the book of Genesis, and we're covering from Noah to the Tower of Babel. Um, and the reason, I know that we're going to try to cover the whole Bible through a year's time, but I want to make sure that we really get Genesis right, because Genesis, as the name tells us, lays the foundation for everything else that's going to come after it. And if we don't get the high points in Genesis correct, then everything else past this point up to and including the Gospels will not make sense. But before we get any further into that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the freedom and for the... uh, the honor and the privilege that it is to be disciples of your word, to hear the voice of God as penned by your servants. And we ask, Lord, that it would shape us into the people that you would have us to be, that we would not just be studying the trivia of your word, but we would be getting insight as to our place in your kingdom, insight as to your wisdom and your will in our lives, and the, uh, the extensive price that you paid for the sake of our eternal salvation. So open our hearts and our minds to you just now, as well as our hands to your service, as we dedicate this time in ourselves into your hands. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Really quickly recap, I wanted to cover the episodes of grace that we've already seen in the Scripture this to, up to this point. Um, In Genesis chapter 3, we learn that redemption would come from the seed of the woman. Uh, Later on, we'll hear that it will come about through the family of Abraham, then through the tribe of Judah. All that's in the book of Genesis leading up to the Gospels. In 2 Samuel, we learn that it will come through the dynasty of David. And in Isaiah 7, that it will take place that the Messiah himself will come with the sign of being born of a virgin from the small town of Bethlehem. Now note this, write this down. Every time, this is a theme I want you to consider, every time God announces to one of his servants how the Messiah will come, how the gospel message and the plan of salvation will take place, the enemy always tries to throw a monkey wrench into that situation. The first monkey wrench that we see, of course, is the first murder. Adam and Eve themselves. uh, Satan may not have plunged a knife into their hearts, but he's the reason they're dead. When Abraham's family comes on the scene, they are persecuted and attempted to be wiped out in Egypt. Uh, The tribe of Judah itself comes under attack. David's dynasty in the books of 2 Kings, um, the house of Israel under Queen under Ahab's wife, um, excuse me, they, they almost get wiped out themselves. So at every step of the way, the enemy tries to throw a monkey wrench 
into God's plan. I want you to pay particular attention to that because it's a theme that will keep going. Now, what we're going to try to cover today again is from, uh, well, I'm going to step back and cover a little bit more about Cain and Abel, but we're going to try to cover from that point up to the Tower of Babel and capture the highlights, what I really hope that you gain from your reading as we continue on. So in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel is one that we're all very familiar with. Both parties, both Cain and Abel, descended uh, direct children of Adam and Eve. They both engaged in sacrificial worship. So some form of redemptive worship was put in place after the fall. One offered the prescribed offering, Hebrews 9.22, which tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And this is, the, this is the scripture where the phrase, you don't get blood from a turnip, comes from. Because one offered the prescribed blood sacrifice. Again, uh, sin can only be atoned by the shedding of innocent blood. The other one tried to uh, sacrifice the work of his hands the produce of his own work. And God rejected the sacrifice of works. This is the first time that we see that prophetic image. And it's going to come back to us in Scripture again and again and again. Only God's redemptive grace can save us. Works cannot save us. And that's one of the prophetic insights of this story. But also, as God tells Cain... Be careful for your uh, for the sin is is waiting for you is lying in wait for you, as we see him again trying to give up the work of his hands, which is a condition which is an outpouring of his own pride. God rejects because it's the improper sacrifice, which leads to jealousy, which leads to anger, which leads eventually to what murder. In this case, the second murder, the the murder of his own brother. Now, we also see later on Seth, the third son of Adam, who is said to be in Adam's own likeness, emerge. And out of his line, we get this. I went over last time the different meanings of the names and how there is that, that the, uh, the begats in Genesis are actually worth your time to take a look at. But we get this interesting figure called Enoch who the New Testament actually identifies as a prophet, even though, unfortunately, we don't get any of his sayings or any of his own writings. Hebrews, uh, the writer tells us that by faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away, for before he was taken away, he was approved as the one who pleased God. This is another instance of the doctrine that the just shall live by Faith. And Enoch apparently was a very early example of a just person not living by works, but living by faith. Now, the uh, Jude himself points this out to us as well. It's actually a canonization of what, what had been a traditional saying of his. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners 
have said against him. So even though he had passed on supposedly some, uh, something prophetic, it only became canonized through the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But anyway, uh, chronologically speaking, this is the first revelation of apocalyptic literature that we have in the Bible. Revelation is in the book of Genesis, in other words. Because Enoch, the person, his, his writings or his words didn't make it into Genesis, but he is a character identified, according to Jude, the way in which Christ would return, surrounded by his saints and his angels. That, if you don't find that interesting, you need more coffee. He was translated to heaven, in other words, he was taken up into heaven because he pleased God, or in your copy of God's Word, it says that he walked with God. Methuselah is another one that I want to call, call to your attention, not just because of the longevity of his life, but because, as his name suggests, he is Enoch's son, Enoch the prophet, and his name has a significance. Methuselah himself, because of his age, is a prophetic image of God's grace. Why? Because we know over the course of, of these generations that the sin in humanity had been deepening. And it had been deepening to the point that God would eventually grow grieved of the fact that He had created us in the first place. But He put up with us through at least the entire expanse of Methuselah's life which was 969 years. The name Methuselah itself translates roughly into his death has sent or his death shall bring. And what happened on the date of his death? He dies when Noah turns 60 years old, which is the exact same year that what happens? The flood his death shall bring. In other words, God's judgment, this was a sign that God's judgment would take place because when he dies, the flood comes. Now, in Genesis 6, 1 through 9, Moses writes, or excuse me, yeah, Moses writes, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, this is looking at the rationale behind why the flood happens, or rather the, the background scenery that the Bible gives us. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, Benai Elohim, saw the daughters of mankind, and the word for mankind there is actually Adam, Adam, because Adam, that word actually translates into man or human. So when the sons of God saw the daughters of Adam and that they were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. And this is the first time that we see a limitation placed on the lifespan of a person. Their days will be 120 years. Now note that beforehand he hadn't put that kind of an age limit on people. They just lived with the certainty that one day they would die. Methuselah himself almost lasted for a millennium. But here he puts the first cap on their days at 120 years. As we read on, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, 
I'll get into that more later, were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. And when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men, men of great renown in some of your translations, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread upon the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but what? Evil all the time. Okay, how depraved do you have to get? Every inclination, human nature, every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Now I want you to pay particular attention to this wording, because it's caused a lot of conjecture about the book of Genesis, particularly about the flood. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, underlined, blameless among his contemporaries. I'll get into why just later. Noah walked with God. Now, going back to the Nephilim, that word from Greek, I mean, excuse me, from Hebrew translates in in different ways, giants or tyrants. More literally, if you dissect the word, it means the fallen ones. When it says that they are mighty, the Hebrew word there means proud or tyrannical. So the question is, when when the Bible tells us that these were the mighty men of old, the people of great renown, there are many uh, authors, commentarians, theologians, what have you, that are curious, are these the gods of ancient pantheistic religions? Uh, Like... um, like the Greeks, was one of these old men of renown, a tall guy who was strong and fully capable, Hercules, maybe Zeus, maybe a fast one was Mercury, you know, or, or demigods or heroes of the past. Were they an attempt from the enemy to corrupt the line of the Messiah? Basically by saying that, no, you were not the seed of a woman because uh, this corrupt DNA got into the the gene pool, so to speak, because the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, is used in other places, particularly in the book of Job, to signify angels. So the question, so this has caused a whole lot of different kinds of speculation. And in Genesis 6-9 in particular, when you look at that verse, and you see that Noah is described in some translations, it says that he, that he, in his own generation, was considered perfect. But you can also translate that as that he was perfect in his generations. Almost hinting that it wasn't he and his time period that was beneficial, but that, that his lineage, his bloodline, was what was perfect about him. And that's caused a whole lot of speculation that the reason that the flood happened was because of of these demonic hybrids. That is one theory that has been circulating in theological circles for years. How many years that we're talking about now to the flood? At least 969. 
at least a millennium from uh, Noah himself, from the time that he was born until the time that the flood started, was, uh, if I remember correctly, he was 60 years old. 600 years old. I'm sorry. So he was 600 at the time that he was, I'm sorry, that was a, a misprint on my slides. I'll have to go back to my commentaries, but what I saw was basically an on-the-surface reading that the 120 years meant that the lifespan became 120, because later on in the biblical text, it gets shortened even further. But anyway, let's move on. So the question is, are we talking about the sons of God referring to demon-human hybrids, or are we talking about the sons of God referring to the line of Seth, the godly line, the line that hadn't been corrupted by Cain and Abel, because we know that Cain's line is still out there. But the question then would be, why did the sons of God, meaning Seth's children, um, go after the daughters of Adam, meaning Cain's descendants? So that one doesn't necessarily hold that much water because why not just refer to them as the daughters of Cain, if that's the... But that, the, the idea that circulates on this reason behind the flood is that the line of Seth, the good people, had been corrupted because they intermarried with the daughters of Cain, the bad people. And that uh, the Nephilim, the men of old, so to speak, the heroes of old, were the result of disobedience in marriage. But anyway, the, what I tend to go with, especially when you take a look at when God gives his covenant to Noah, he specifies this curious phrase that of the blood of men will there be required an accounting. I tend to look at the reason behind the flood at face value that the reason behind it was the fact that human nature, the sin nature, had gotten so ingrained in the hearts of the people living at that time that human wickedness had gone beyond God's ability to tolerate it, beyond His, his grace. Every inclination we hear has been turned to evil. But only one family remained faithful to God, a remnant, as we talked about earlier, that would be saved. So in the flood, it rained for how long? 40 days, 40 nights. Not only that, but we read that the fountains of the deep had been opened up, meaning the groundwater sources had apparently sprung up as well. So the waters covered the surface of the earth for approximately 150 days. The ark, the Bible tells us, was sailing for about five months. The issue with that translation in any of your copies is that we don't know if it's 30, 30 days per month, 31 days per month, 28 days per month. But we know that according to the biblical record, the ark sailed for five months. It was stuck on the mountains for seven months before the waters had receded enough for them to come back down, which means 
they were stuck in the ark for about a full year's time. But what I want you to notice as Christians about this account is that the remnant of faithful, those that still believed in God, were called out from among the fallen people. There is a prophetic, not just a historic, but a prophetic image that's being set up for us here. The two work in harmony. A remnant had been called out from among the fallen people. They were instructed by God on how they would survive. Only one means of escape from God's wrath had been provided. Only one door. And who shut that door? God himself shut that door. And I want you to also notice that from the time that the door was shut to the time that they emerged a year or so later, there had been no losses. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and if anyone cometh unto me, I will what? In no ways cast out. How many of you ever saw that in the ark story? How many of you ever saw that prophetic image being set up by the ark? Right, all those that went in came out. He saved all of them. Anyway, the red blip on your screen right now is the approximate location of the mountains of Ararat. And that green triangle down below the screen, this is a Google Maps incidentally of today's time, is the approximate location of Babylon just south of Baghdad. This is Ararat. It's in the far eastern side of Turkey. And with the exception of a peak on the northwest corner that rises to about 7,000 feet high, this is a ridge system, and it is completely isolated. It's surrounded on all sides by plains. It is a lonely mountain. The ridge of Ararat rises to 8,800 feet above sea level and has two peaks. The tallest is referred to as Great Ararat, and which is 16,854 feet high, and Little Ararat, which is 12,840 feet. From the point of 14,000 feet, Great Ararat is covered with snow year-round. And this is, apparent, this is the place that the Bible identifies where eventually the ark came to rest. Then Noah built an altar for the Lord. This is after the, uh, after the flood. He took some of every kind of clean animal, and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt, burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is from evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So Noah himself provides this, this sacrifice for God where he dedicates himself and his future generations to God. And as a result, or in tandem with the will of God, rather, God commits to this covenant where he will never again send a great flood like this one upon the earth for as long as this earth 
The old earth, the fallen earth, remains. We'll get into that in just a second. As long as the earth endures, verse 22, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Again, this is as long as the fallen earth. We see the earth renewed later on. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be on every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. Now this is significantly different from what we read earlier in Genesis. Earlier on in Genesis, God tells them, that all the green plants, all the fruits of the trees, that's going to be your food. But now, human beings become omnivores, meat eaters as well. Eaters of pretty much everything. As I gave you the green plants, I have given you everything. However, note this, you must not eat meat with its life's blood still in it. This comes back to us when James, the brother of Christ, is writing down this new covenantal arrangement with the Gentile Christians of his day. When the Council of Jerusalem meets and the church, the apostles have to decide, okay, do incoming Gentiles have to become Jews first in order to be Christians? Or can we just accept them as Gentiles? This is what they hearken back to to come up with that statement of faith. You must not eat meat with its blood in it, and I will require a penalty for your life's blood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. So here we see that capital punishment is instituted for murder. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans what? In his image. Murder, the, 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 the killing, the premeditated killing of another human being is an assault against God because God gave humans his own image. And as a result, you are not just a cog in the machine, so to speak, but you are a being of eternal significance and divine worth to him. And it's because of that phrase that I'm suspecting that murder... Slaughter, possibly even genocide, became rampant during the time before the flood. I can't place, uh, I can't say that with any degree of certainty because the Word of God doesn't outright say it. But because God has, has put this spe so specifically as part of this covenant, it's something that I suspect. But you, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth. Notice it says, don't, not to harbor yourself in one place, so to speak, but to spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all live, wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the floodwaters. There will never again be a flood 
to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you. And this is incredibly significant, I believe, for the world that we live in today. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my what? My bow in the skies, the rainbow. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So the covenant of Noah began through sacrifice of clean animals, the shedding of innocent blood. The earth would not be in danger of another flood so long as it, uh, another flood by waters, we will find out later on in scriptures. The family was, of Noah was tasked with repopulating and spreading throughout the earth. They failed to do this. We're going to see that that's a problem in just another, another little bit. Animals will live in fear of humanity and we will rule over them or we have been given uh, the, the management authority over them, the, the um, conservationist, if you will. Human beings become omnivores here, but we are commanded not to eat blood because the life is in the blood. In fact, God said there will be a counting of blood, an accounting of all life, in other words, Death penalty is ordained for murder because of its infraction upon God's image. And the rainbow is set as a reminder of or a symbol of obedience and grace. Obedience, not pride. Selflessness, not selfishness. Who I am to somebody else, not personal identity. Your identity, I am who the great I am says that I am. In other words, and the rainbow is supposed to be a reminder of that, that we are all accountable ultimately to someone and that someone places authority over us, not because he wants to crush us, but because he loves us. So anyway, when we get to Genesis chapter 10, we have the family tree of Noah, what we call the tableau or the table of the nations. There are three things that I want you to pay close attention to. Number one is that Canaan becomes cursed by Noah. Now, as we talked about in some of our other types of studies here, this passage of Scripture has been misused as a, as a theological proof for, for slavery, for prejudice. Now, this has nothing to do with the color of someone's skin. Because Canaan was the forebearer, not of Africans, but the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the so forth. All of the, the fallen people, because of bad parentage, who declined God, who didn't respect the things of God, as we saw in that episode regarding Ham and Noah, they became cursed by God, or rather cursed by Noah, excuse me. And, and the result was an extreme case of fallenness. In fact, if you'll recall from our studies in Exodus, they were guilty of wholesale uh, human sacrifice, child sacrifice, and so forth. Anyway, but we also see through this passage tribal affiliations that are used future in, in 
future prophetic texts, like uh, the battle, the, the onslaught of Magog, instead of ethnicities, the way that we normally think of them. And I'll show you that in just a second. I also want you to pay attention to who Abraham's ancestor was. In this case, he and the Jews are what we would call Shemites. But, and I know that's going to be hard for you to see on the screen here. It'd be easier for those at home. This is a map that kind of covers where after the Tower of Babel incident, the different grandchildren of Noah and their descendants spread out. Magog is that real little green blob in the upper, kind of in the upper east, in today what we would call the, the Russian region, probably Ukraine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the country of that area. That could mean visually understanding um, who those people are. We don't know. All that we do know is that when the Bible refers to an incoming people from a future time, when the nations don't make sense because they don't know if that's the Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, what that is in the future days. They just know that this is the area of settlement for that particular family. And that's how they refer to them. Now, this map shows us where Babylon is in relation to everything else. Babel becomes Babylon. If I didn't hammer that point home, once the family of Noah comes out, they begin to grow, they add members, new human beings are born, and eventually they travel, the Bible tells us, down to the plain of Shinar, where they construct a city. And that city gains the name Babel, which means gate to God, or gateway to heaven, something along those lines. El meaning a brief for the Lord. This is also the first king of that city. Actually, the first king as we can identify them. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land, he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. In some of your translations, it says before the Lord. This, his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went on to Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth-ir, Kaleh, resin between Nineveh and the great city of Kaleh. So effectively, he becomes the first worldwide emperor. You need to understand that because he is echoed in the book of Revelation. Just as the priest, the priest, the prophet, and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, was a forerunner of Christ. Nimrod is often cited as being a forerunner of the coming world leader, the Antichrist. He was the first worldwide ruler, the first establishment of an emperor. Me, an emperor. And he's also potentially 
canonized in other religions under a different name, such as Gilgamesh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Josephus, the Jewish historian who uh, wrote about the things of Judah and Israel during the time of the Roman Empire, wrote this about him. In Antiquity of the Jews, he says that Nimrod uh, claimed that he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to ever drown the world again. For that, he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Again, this is non, not divinely inspired, but this is the way that they viewed who this guy was and how he was in relationship to God. It says that in many of your translations that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord or in the sight of the Lord. A more literal translation would say in the face of the Lord or a mighty hunter against the Lord, setting himself up as an enemy. This is a, uh, an artist's rendering of a type of building known as a ziggurat, which was a temple back in the Babylonian uh, time. This is their version of a pyramid. You can see the different uh, symmetries that went up into building the thing, and this is how they were able to bake bricks into a structure that was as high as they became. The shape actually reinforces the weight distribution to allow a massive construction so that they were literally trying to reach into the heavens. So, again, the word used as before the Lord literally means in the face of the Lord or against. So that may very well actually translate into a mighty hunter against God. Babel, later Babylon, Functionally, the way that it was used in, in Hebrew from Genesis on meant to be confused by mixing together. But when it was, but if you parcel the word together, it literally means a gateway of or a gateway to God. So why the tower? There are some that speculate that it was an astrological temple, a type of zodiac worship. This is where that gets corrupted. Now we remember back from Genesis chapter 1 that when the stars were created, what purpose did they have for the people on earth? They were given to us so that we would know the times and the seasons. They were meant as a method of telling time, not worship. It is known that in the Babylonian Empire from its earliest days, Zodiac worship is where, this is where Zodiac worship starts to emerge. But we don't know that this is the reason why the Tower of Babel was constructed. Was it to be a national monument? We hear it said that they wanted to make a name for themselves among the earth. Was it protection from another flood, as Josephus conjectures? Or were they actually trying to invade heaven? If we take a look at Genesis 6, Oh, excuse me, 11, 6. I'll get to that in just a second. I'm sorry. Slides are out of order. Anyway, Nimrod, his name literally means rebellion. Um, I think that we've already covered that anyway. The Lord said, they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language. Then nothing they plan or they imagine to do will what? 
be impossible for them. I want you to imagine that for just a second. Let's imagine that not in a fallen context, but in the context of the local church. Or let's imagine that in the context of the capital C church. If every Christian on this planet were wholly committed to God and to his word, were wholly unified under sound doctrine, we see that in, in this passage, when all of humanity was unified with a fallen purpose, God tells them that because they are this unified, nothing that they set out to do will be restricted from them. They can do anything. They are this united. If all of humanity are this strong and this committed and this united, they can do it. If this was true then in a fallen state, with human nature driving them to wickedness, what could we do as the people of God under the influence of His Spirit, sound doctrine, if we were to set, if we were just to stand up together as one? What could we even do as the local church with that kind of spirit of unity? That's a convicting statement. Because they are united, nothing that they plan or that they imagine to do will be impossible for them. But because their hearts were darkened at this point in time, God's judgment is the following. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. We have to divide them. And as a result, this was punishment for self-worship. This was punishment for the ultimate example of pride. The worship ultimately of the self. So division by language resulted in cultural division as we see all other nations coming up. Religious division as we said the, see the spread of idolatry and paganism where the, the truth of the origins of the human race get contorted into something that ends up becoming uh, the origin myths of other, of other religions. We see political divisions as the lines are drawn, as boundaries are created, and we see ethnic divisions, all of which results in a state of fallenness and strife. But I want you to note this. Almost every culture still existing to this day that came out of that disillusion, almost all of them still to this day retain a universal flood account. Even to the fact that on these shores, the Cherokee Nation and the Sioux had a flood account. So this was not an isolated happening just to the Middle East. As we continue in our study of God's Word, you'll see this pattern emerging too, that the Bible is the tale of two cities. Two cities that are set in prophetic contrast. There's Jerusalem where God is worshiped, and there is Babylon where people try to worship themselves. That's the reality that the Bible is trying to set up. So next session, we're going to try to cover in brief the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is later called Israel, and Joseph and his rescue of his family.
And in your groups, I'd like for you to do the following for discussion. Remember to share the highlights of your reading and your journals. And I want you to consider the following questions from what you've already read in God's Word, as well as what you know from your own personal experience. In the thousands of years since the Bible has been penned, has human nature improved? As we go forward in time, and as people develop new technologies, as people amass knowledge, as people invent things like flush toilets and microwave ovens and air conditioners, does new technology, does increased knowledge also mean that the society is maturing? Ethically. And that kind of bleeds into the last question. Are people of a future time morally superior to the people of the past? There are fallacies involved that I want you to consider here. Just because we're in the 21st century now, does that mean that we are morally superior to the people that lived in the 1950s and 60s? Does that mean that the people of the 1950s and 60s were morally superior to the people that were living in the 1700s? Does the fact that we have newer, better stuff make us inherently better than the people that came before us? A gentleman by the name of Oppenheimer comes to mind who was the first person to invent a, a way to create energy out of an atom. And after he saw the arms race that that discovery created, and from the 1950s on, we had the realization that, that human existence was now somehow optional. I remember he quoted an ancient Hindu text which read, I am now become death, the destroyer of worlds. So here's the question. With all the good that we have could have potentially done with that technology, on the balance, have we done more good or, for, or more evil? Are we maturing as a better people with each passing year? Or are we still morally the same way that we have been all those ages past. I'll leave that for you to consider. We'll come back to it later on. Anything else before we dismiss? Okay, I know I haven't necessarily left you on a, a bright and happy note. <laughs> so I'll try to leave you on a bright and happy note. It's not about us. The story of Babel can be summed up by this. Babel is a group of people that tried to reach heaven by the work of their hands, the same way that Cain did all those years ago. Tried to get into heaven by their own works. But that wasn't possible. But God himself 
out of just his sheer love for you, his grace, his unmerited love for you, that you didn't have to earn. He loved you because he loves you. Because of his grace, he did the work for us. A completed, perfect, amazing work which cost him everything. So what we could not do, he did for us. The only thing that he asks is that we believe, we accept, and we turn ourselves from ourselves and turn to him. And hopefully that's enough to make any Baptist shout. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, it is again that we come before you to ask that you would help us to see your grace on every page. Lord, that in your, that in your word we may better understand the mistakes of the past and the, the fallen traps of the past so that we may avoid them, so that we might uh, better assist those who are enduring them, and so that we may proclaim the work that you have done for us on our behalf, the work that we did not deserve, but that through you, Lord, we do have everlasting life. And we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for that precious gift. Now help us as we continue on to be better reflections of your light and your love to others. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.